0: It's Friday, December 19th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed, everybody will be mailing holiday gifts, the lines will be super long, so use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. For a special no-risk trial plus $110 bonus offer, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINES. That's stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. This episode is sponsored by Scribd, the subscription book service that lets you read and listen like you own every book in the world. With Scribd, you get unlimited access to more than half a 1000000 eBooks and 30,000 audiobooks on your phone, tablet, and web browser, all for just $8.99 a month. But if you go to scribd.com slash mines right now, you can get started with three free months. That's three months of unlimited ebooks and audiobooks while supporting this show by going to scribd.com slash mines. Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. Imagine opening your email and seeing only the legit mail that you want and need to receive. MailRoot can make this a daily reality. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mailbox. To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Joining me again as guest host this week is Kishore Hari. He's the director of the Bay Area Science Festival, and he's a nerd herder extraordinaire. Kishore, welcome back to Inquiring Minds.
1: It's great to be back. I have to live up to the title of extraordinaire.
0: (laughs) Oh, you do it with with such panache. It's time It's time for the holidays. And, you know, you might be wondering what to do with all the free time that suddenly found itself on your calendar, right? You know, holidays, not a busy time. But anyway, if you do have any free time, you might be spending it with your friends and family or... You could brush up on your math skills and have a great time, too. So Matt Parker is probably the world's only professional stand-up comedian and mathematician, and he hopes that you'll take on the latter activity. And he's written a great new book to get you started. It's called Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension, and it's packed full of great advice from how to cut up a pizza democratically to ensuring that you never again have to pay your bar bill some math tricks uh, out in this in this book. Matt started out as a math teacher in Australia and now lives in London, where he makes a living both as a stand-up comedian and as a math communicator with appearances in popular YouTube videos, TV shows, radio programs. Um, he also has a fancy title at Queen Mary University in London, but it's not very funny. So when I asked Matt whether he always loved math or whether there was a turning point in his life, here's what he had to say. My... Dad is an accountant,
2: and he actually brainwashed me from a very young age to enjoy mathematics. In fact, long before I got to school, he'd convinced me that doing sums was a kind of treat uh, in itself. And so when I showed up at school, I was like, hey, math, I love this stuff. Then everyone else was of a different opinion, it turns out. But by then, I mean, say what you want about brainwashing, it works. So by then, it was, you know, it was ingrained.
1: So, Kishore, what do you think? I loved uh, him and relating to uh, the father, like, Helping him with math problems, my dad would give me math homework in the morning uh, and and he would be able to do like all of my calculus homework you know throughout throughout high school it w- It was kind of scary i didn 't enjoy math partially because my dad was assigning problems so you know, Matt talking about how much how much joy he got out of solving math problems wasn't entirely relatable to me, but I have come around to this notion that there is beauty and joy in mathematics. I have so many friends that are like, tell me about mathematical beauty and the aesthetics of a great equation, which I don't think I can personally relate to, but you should see the look on their face. And it reminds me of just what Matt was doing this whole interview, which was like basically jumping through the the phone with you, just like s- smile ear to ear talking about math. Like he rebelled any notion that math is boring in any shape or form, and that you can really demonstrate its applicability, even high abstract concepts to everyday life. So I still don't enjoy doing math problems in my spare time, but I totally get there is a subset of people that love doing math, and that really derive real pleasure out of it. So So
0: maybe if you want to get your kids into math, Asking them to solve math problems is not the only route. Um, so we'll, we'll hear more from the interview about what are the, what are other options parents have to instill the joy of math. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, I wanted to just touch on a couple of science headlines that caught my eye uh, and yours, Kishore. So one that I found really interesting was this idea that there are now engineers, uh, biotechnology engineers that have developed a way of essentially inserting little tiny robots into your body that can help you fight diseases like cancer and various other infectious diseases like HIV, which is kind of amazing. So there are these researchers at the Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard and Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and they just published a paper in Nature Biotechnology um, of a non-surgical injection of programmable biomaterial that spontaneously assembles in vivo that is like in your cells um, into a 3d structure that can fight and even prevent cancer and hiv so it's kind of amazing and um, so what they do is they they synthesize these these tiny little things um and they're, they have these little holes called nanopores inside them. And these nanopores then can be filled with whatever the drug of action is. So, um, whether it's a cytokine or, um, you know, a, a, another kind of protein antigen or whatever, any drug can then be inserted, not, probably not any drug, but vast, the large number of, of drugs can be inserted. And then, um, this little thing gets injected into a person, and it's like a, a scaffold. Um, So you inject this little tiny scaffold, and then it kind of builds itself once it's inside your body, um, and it recruits and attracts millions of cells that are part of your immune system. And then that triggers an immune sy- response, and it gets distributed uh, all over your body. And so right now, it's only been done in mice, but it's like... You know essentially inserting a little robot vaccine and eventually maybe can it can be used preventatively um, to protect people from things like cancer, which is amazing
1: so let 's be clear about this this isn 't robots in the way I first read that headline where we 're shrinking down the Futurama spaceship to go flying through the body. This is really about these silica rods, which is what the material is based out of, that have all these pore like structures across the rod. And they're basically injecting them and they fall in this pattern that is like if you drop matchsticks on a table. They form this kind of spontaneous weave. Is that right? Yeah.
0: Ex- well, that's, that's exactly how they describe it. And, and you know, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the definition of robots is, but robots sounds really cool. <laughs> I get really excited at this. The anti-robot
1: vacciners (laughs) are going to be much harsher, though.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think that that the the analogy to robots is essentially that it's not that they're just injecting something that, you know, is kind of just, you know, doesn't do anything, right? It actually builds itself inside your body. And that's where the analogy comes in. And so I think that's what's kind of exciting about it is that they do, um, they, they, they do build themselves uh, inside your, your body in order to trigger this response.
1: What was fascinating to me about it was, was sort of two things. It's one, the material itself seems to break down in about 30 days is what they found in the mice, so that it's not leaving the long-term uh, impacts that other materials that have been tried in the past with this kind of technique have done. So that has a lot of potential for therapeutic uh, applications and really injecting right at the site. So you don't have to do these invasive surgeries and and stick a sort of material right near the tumor site. And the second is this notion of they have a lot of control in the manufacturing process of the pore size. So the types of materials like you're alluding to, whether they're cytokines or different protein structures to attract a certain type of cell, um, a certain type of immune cell to come to that site, That, I think, is an amazing potential, if they can just use basic pore size to affect that. Um, But it also left me wondering how, uh, how selective it is. Can you do it so that it's like at 10 microns, the Uh, The dendritic cells are going to come, and at twelve, like this other cell is going to come. I don't know how much control they actually have on the on that kind of process, but the potential is really exciting.
0: Yeah, and it is still very early days. Of course, it's only been tested in mice so far, and I don't know. Again, as you mentioned, like you know how these materials will react in humans, and whether there are some side effects that you know are going to make it impossible. But just the technology itself, I think, is really. Interesting. And I know that, that the delivery system of a lot of drugs is really still the problematic, that that's a major obstacle in biotech. And so if this is a novel delivery system that can then be used for a number of different drugs, um, that's kind of exciting.
1: I think it sounds great. I I was initially... Uh, when I read like the the matchstick analogy, I was like, that doesn't sound like precision medicine to me. <laughs> uh, just we're going to drop a bunch of rods, and they're going to form this spontaneous shape that's going to work magically. And uh, uh, but when you actually read through some of the uh, the results from um, some of the the mouse studies that they've done, it it's actually fairly um, impressive. And I'm really looking forward to uh, some of the further research that utilizes the technology.
0: Yeah. And remember, like, what's the alternative in cancer, right? A lot of it is chemo. So let's, let's try to get the body to kill itself. (laughs) But this seems a little bit more specific. Uh, So yeah, so I'm excited. We'll see where it goes. So uh, Kishore, there is another study that were, I guess, case uh, that caught your eye. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: We're going to talk about Tommy, not the pinball wizard, but the chimpanzee. There's a chimpanzee uh, in upstate New York named Tommy used to uh, be part of a circus now is privately owned, and lives in less than ideal conditions for a chimp. And not that he's mistreated, but he lives in a cage, uh, and is privately owned and and by all measures is well taken for, care of. But does not live in the, in the jungle and indigenous um, uh, area that you would expect a chimp to grow up in. And there's been this lawyer, his name is Stephen Wise, who founded a group called uh, the non, uh, Non-Human Rights Project. Project, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, which has a horrible acronym of <laughs> NHPR. Uh, and it really started to look at this issue of personhood Can an animal itself bring a lawsuit to free itself, emancipate itself from a private owner? And it brings up all these um, really fascinating questions of, well, this this chimpanzee is not a person, so it's not covered by our legal system. It's a non-human at all, so it has no rights to file habeas corpus, which is uh, essentially the the legal writ that says uh, unlawful imprisonment. But Can a uh, are there any other cases of a non human really having the standing? And so, Stephen has been in animal uh, legal affairs for a number of years, and that nonprofit he works on has some heavy hitters. Jane Goodall is on the scientific advisory board, and he really came to this conclusion of like this notion of a if we select animals that have high intelligence evidenced by scientific research, as saying they have this capability of self-awareness and autonomy, uh, should we declare them as non-human persons to give them certain rights? And uh, just last week, a, an appellate court uh, uh, dismissed the case, um, and they're already filing an appeal, on not under the notion that um, the scientific arguments are incorrect, uh, they said by all, uh, they didn't even address any of the scientific arguments. And there's a number of primatologists that filed briefs, uh, uh on the side of, uh, of Stephen's uh, nonprofit, but on the side that these animals couldn't take on, uh, responsibilities that are innate in sort of in human life. So they couldn't take on this, uh, they didn't have the capability within them to bear the responsibilities that come with these rights. And, uh, it sort of it becomes this really big question of who is a person. And Stephen cited all of these cases worldwide, many going back hundreds of years, of where non-human things have been deemed to have rights as pre- people. Most are probably familiar with this corporations or people mm-hmm. uh, ism, but he even cites a work where a book in India was given rights. This a um, religious book was given certain rights, so it couldn't be destroyed or. Um, or defamed in in certain circumstances, uh, I think it poses this really fascinating question: one legal, one scientific. Is do animals have any concept uh, of rights uh, innate just as they're born? And it and then the second follow up question, which is the science argument here, is intelligence and self awareness really the standing that it takes the measure? Of what we say. So a sea slug is not going to have this kind of standing, but a dolphin probably could. I, I think from a neuroscience standpoint, what uh I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Yeah, so this this first came to my um so so I first came across this case by a recent article in Popular Science magazine, just in in this week's issue. Um and sorry, I guess it's in this month's issue of Popular Science magazine, there was an article in which this question was posed, are chimpanzees people? Uh, And, you know, of course, legally, they're not. Um, But then the question was, you know, if they uh, are so like humans in terms of feeling emotions and having self awareness and self consciousness, and, you know, behaving much like we do, where do we draw the line in terms of human or non-human rights in this case? Um, and of course, this raises a lot of issues for uh, animal testing and science. We, we've learned about chimpanzees because we've studied them. And we've learned about ourselves because we've studied a lot of these highly complex animals. And um, so, you know, on the one hand, you have science saying, look, these Animals really do have a lot of these human-like characteristics, and therefore they do feel empathy and they do feel, you know, they, they, they can consider their past, present and future. And so they do feel um, sad at the thought of being incarcerated for the rest of their lives. Uh, but at the same time, you know, so science has told us that, but at the same time, you know, these, these animals have given so much back to our species, you know, allowed us to develop so much of our scientific knowledge. Um, and so, you know, if we hadn't incarcerated them and tested on them, we wouldn't be where we are in terms of understanding them and ourselves. And so, but you know, it's a paradox.
1: The Animals also have social responsibilities within their own groups, like they have responsibilities to child rearing, they have responsibilities within their own mini societies. This is often exhibited in different uh, primate cultures. Um, So I think the legal aspect of this is really, really tricky. Uh, I will say um, this isn't something frivolous. Like All the analysis of this, especially from the legal side, said this case was smart. Even though it's I think a lot of people have really specific feelings on the way that this should go in that uh, they selected a particular jurisdiction where the the um, uh, there is a likelihood that they could have gotten a, a positive verdict on this. But also he's trying to emancipate a chimpanzee that's in like private ownership that lives in a cage, so that this chimp could go live in a sanctuary. So it already identified this. So I want people to sort of put away that notion that this is frivolous in any way. Uh, but I do think the the question that underlies the the actual case is what constitutes uh, something having individual rights, and it goes much deeper than the science argument that I think. Uh, you pose because of this notion of do individuals collectively when they form a corporation have the same rights as the individual? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's uh, some legal analysis saying that habeas corpus is an individual right. It's not a species right. So is that scientific distinction of species mean anything in this context? Uh, It's really sticky for me because they've Found a, a particular case where my heart and emotion is like, yeah, that chimp should be in a sanctuary and and be uh and be free but um I, I'm not sure there's a slippery slope here, but it's it just seems um a a difficult choice to to ascribe rights to this chimpanzee, but there are some compelling arguments to consider
0: yeah, I mean I think this is you know often on this this uh, on the show we talk about how science can affect society, and this is how society is going to be able to affect science. I mean, if, if this ruling ever does have a positive, or if this case ever does have a positive verdict uh, on, on the, the side of the chimpanzee, I mean, this could really change the way animals are used in science across the country. So I'll be watching it carefully and, and continuing to ponder the dilemma and, and, you know, the ethics of it all. So with that, let's take a short break and come back with my interview with Matt Parker. Inquiring Minds listeners know the value of always having a great story at hand, and Scribd is the subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to the largest library of eBooks and audiobooks out there. Head over to Scribd.com/Minds to get started with three months free. That's scrib slash minds They've got more than half a million eBooks, including books by best-selling authors like David McCullough, Annie Dillard, Francine Prose, and John Perkins. Now, even better for you audiophiles, they've just added more than 30,000 audiobooks to their library, including books from award-winning authors like Simon Winchester, Wallace Stegner, and Barbara Kingsolver. That's all the books you could ever want to read or listen to on your phone, tablet, and web browser, all for just $8.99 a month. That's unlimited listening in your car, on the train, at the gym, wherever the story takes you. And if you go to scribd.com/minds right now, they'll set you up with three months free to get started. That's three months of unlimited reading and listening, and you'll be supporting our show. That's scribd.com/minds. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Traffic, parking—it'll be packed with everybody mailing holiday gifts and packages. So use stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, then the mailman picks it up. It's so easy and convenient. And one thing that I love about it is that you can import addresses directly from Microsoft Outlook or QuickBooks, and that makes things way easier. Right now, get this special offer when you use the promo code MINDS, a no-risk trial plus $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. Now imagine opening your email and seeing only the legit mail that you want and need to receive. MailRoot can make that a daily reality. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mailbox. It's easy to set up, it's reliable and trusted by the largest universities and corporations. As a desktop user, you'll find that MailRoot's user interface is simple and effective. If you're an email admin or an IT pro, they've built all of their tools with you in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. MailRoot supports LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Matt Parker. Hey. It's great to have you on the show. I've really enjoyed a lot of your YouTube videos, and I've actually learned a lot about math from you.
2: Oh, thank you very much. That's, and they work. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> they do. So actually, I wanted to start right there and ask you whether you always enjoyed math growing up, or whether this was something that there was a turning point in your life when you decided, actually, math is much more interesting than I had anticipated, and I want to devote my life to it.
2: Well, that is a very good question, and actually, it's a bit of both, because my Dad is an accountant and he actually brainwashed me from a very young age to enjoy mathematics. In fact, long before I got to school, he'd convinced me that doing sums was a kind of treat uh, in itself. And so when I showed up at school, I was like, hey, math, I love this stuff. Then everyone else was of a different opinion, it turns out. But by then, I mean, say what you want about brainwashing, it works. So by then, it was, you know, it was ingrained. But I did, I, I did briefly, I mean, if you don't, and this is just between you know, you and, and all your listeners, <laughs> that I, I, if you don't pass it any further than this, I um, actually started off doing a, a mechanical engineering degree at, at university. And um, those were dark days. And I got, I got about halfway through a mech-engine degree before I realized if I finished it, it would leave me dangerously employable. And I also realized that what I really liked was just doing the equations. That you know, it was It was the actual math behind engineering that set my world on fire. And so I transferred over and I went, right, if anyone needs me, I'll be in the math department. And so that was my second. You know, I came back to the fold. I was the prodigal mathematician. So yeah, and ever since then, it's been it's been math nonstop since then.
0: So when did you start to incorporate math into your stand-up routine? It started by
2: accident because I was working as a math teacher. I was, I was teaching in a high school at the time. And so during the day, I was teaching math to teenagers. And then in the evening, I was telling jokes to drunk people in comedy clubs, which are actually surprisingly similar skill set. And then uh, I've started, because it with stand-up, you can't help but talk about what you're passionate about, and it makes your life so much easier to be engaging and to hold an audience's attention if you really believe and care about what you're talking about, which is why you get a lot of political comedians, whereas for me, I just love nerdy stuff. And so I started talking a little bit about what it's like to be a nerd and just being frustrated that most things in life are not as logical as I appreciate, and people seem to really enjoy it. And people started showing up, expecting me to talk about math. And so I thought, you know what? This is the best of both worlds. This is, I mean, this this is my ideal Venn diagram. If I can do math and stand up at the same time, that's brilliant. And so I was very pleased when I realized there was an audience for that.
0: That's awesome. So before we go any further, I wanted to ask you a question about the difference between maths and math. So it's just it's just a UK US thing. Why is it maths plural in the UK?
2: That's a very good question. You notice I've been saying math because I am bilingual. I, I so appreciated I, that. I try I – see, I actually – I haven't got a – you know, if I'm in America, I say sidewalk and I, I, I um, pronounce things uh, – I say, uh, say aluminum, whereas normally, traditionally, my native tongue, I would say aluminium and footpath. And actually, I'm Australian originally and still am. It's it's quite – it's a terminal thing. And I um, – I grew up say, saying maths, and I've kind of kept that, but I will flip backwards and forwards. And the difference is in in England and Australia and a few other countries, it's a contraction of mathematics because no one says, oh, I study mathematic. It's always a plural. And so some countries, they contract and they keep that plural, whereas in uh, the US, you, you guys do like to truncate. So you get four letters in. You go, frankly, this is enough, and you cut it off. And so you say math, and you say physics, and oh no, you go physics. Physics yeah. gets to keep its plural, but maths doesn't. So yeah, so but I don't take it personally. I I will respond to either.
0: Yeah, we don't we don't say phys. but that's a really interesting commentary about the difference between the UK and the US. So uh, we'll we'll leave that for a whole other show. It's <laughs> yeah, tackle. yeah, it's contraction versus truncation. Yeah, perfect. Um, so I. I do hate to break this to you, but you're not the first person to find the connection between comedy and math. I'm <laughs> uh, <By that> <laughs> In fact, on this very show, we had Simon Singh come and talk about his book, uh, ah, Mathematics and the Simpsons. And, um, he made the comment that there are a lot of commonalities between jokes and mathematical puzzles. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. What Do you see that the two are kind of fundamentally have the same components or do you see them as, as separable things and they just happen to be part, things that you love to do?
2: Oh, goodness. So well, there's probably two things going on there. One is that the kind of – actually, the main thing is that learning mathematics teaches you the kind of logical – thinking skills that you need to assemble jokes and so simon's got his fantastic book um the simpsons and their mathematical secrets and in fact i mean i found this a really useful teaching aid back when i taught math you get to the kind of end of term lesson i used to show an episode of the simpsons and then go through and point out all the math jokes hidden in the background and it was an excuse to convince the kids they weren't learning math when they were and um I found it's a really good way to get people into it because they don't realize, because they think comedy writers, surely that's as far as you get from mathematicians. But yeah, a huge number of the writers are math based. And Fox kind of, they, the writers, they know this, they hire mathematicians, right? And it's because that kind of logical structure for how you systematically go through and solve a problem is the same logical structure you need to assemble the jokes and to put jokes into a narrative and to hold the whole thing together. And a lot of stand-ups, their, their set is less a you know, linear routine. It's more a flow chart. And you take what the audience is doing and you move your way around the flow chart. And that kind of structured approach to performance lends itself to the nerdy mind. So a surprising number of stand-ups are closet nerds. But you know, obviously that, you know, that, that's not what sells when it comes to stand-up. And so uh they tend to keep the nerdiness as as quiet as possible. But you get them chatting behind the scenes and they're all they're all nerd all the way. And so I think it's great that it's such a similar skill set, and I I think it's great that uh most people have kept their nerdy side quiet so I can try and take over the explicitly nerd
0: market. Yeah, it's, it's important to find your niche. I'm, I'm the neuroscientist opera singer, so I feel like I've, I've got wow. my little corner of the world. That is a <laughs> 3 way diagram. That, <laughs> were you doing nerd science and you're like,
2: okay, that's it, opera. Yeah. No, that's my, that's my <laughs> unique selling point. Pretty much.
0: Um, But I, you know, speaking of flowcharts, it's actually the way that you structured your book. Uh, So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, So you, you know, you chose to write a math book that is really about doing things, making things and doing things in what you call the fourth dimension. So tell our listeners a little bit about the premise of the book and specifically about the flowchart.
2: Yes. The book is called Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension. And the the whole book is not about the fourth dimension. A decent chunk of it is, but the whole hands-on thing does go through the entire book. And when I was writing the book, I was looking at other books that were out there, other fantastic math books, and a lot of them talk – they describe – what it's like to be a mathematician, and they talk about the history of math, so they talk about the people who do maths. and so I thought, uh, sorry, math, and I thought it would be nice to actually have a book where the person reading it can have a go. I mean, so a lot of books you can read about what it would be like, but I want people to experience it. And so I went through and I put in there's loads of puzzles, hands-on activities, things you can build, and you can read the book without doing them, but if you want to, you can get your hands dirty. You can actually have a go. And being a mathematician is basically you're paid to play with logic puzzles. That's whatever you think is interesting, you can have a play with that. And I wanted people to try that. So I said, hey, you know, math is not rote learning arithmetic skills and that kind of skill acquisition you may have done at school. Math is about playing with puzzles and exploring them. Uh, The only downside to this is math, some of it can take a lot of background reading. It's quite a structured subject, so to be able to achieve something later on, you've got to often got to learn skills or try something um, previously. I talk a lot about how in sport you've got to learn certain skills or have acquired um, you know, certain bits of knowledge about how games work before you can go on to something else. And so the flowchart of my book at the beginning, it's got the way that all the chapters rest on each other. And so if you want to go and read the chapter about knot theory, which is, you know, the mathematical theory behind knots, you'll notice it's resting on the chapter about prime numbers. You know, that's odd. But actually, there's a theory of how you break any knot down into prime knots. And it's a fantastic way to look at the way knots interact. But unless you've tried that with numbers first, it gets very confusing for knots, and so I've got a kind of recommended structure, and you can work your way any any path through that structure, but will let you know which chapters are worth reading before other ones.
0: It's a little bit like a choose-your own adventure about a, in a book of math. That's just I really of awesome. wanted to do a choose-your
2: own adventure. <laughs> there is actually on one page it says. Uh, to stay and fight this concept, turn to page, whatever. I'm actually in there somewhere. I managed to sneak it in. So, in one, there's a slight nod to choose your own adventure. In one paragraph, there's there's an option.
0: So, I wanted to back up a little bit and talk about this notion of skill acquisition, but then, you know, how that's only one component of the really fun stuff that gets mathematicians excited. Because I was one of these people that did very, very well in math all the way up through high school. You know, I was always at the top of my class. And then I got to college and I took a calculus Class, and I was completely lost. And it was just such a shock to me having done so well in all these skill acquisition things that I I felt that there was something about my brain that I just couldn't fundamentally understand the abstraction of math at this higher level. And given that I'm a woman, I wasn't particularly encouraged to go in that route. And now, I no longer believe, of course, that there's a gender difference and that that's the the answer for why I couldn't do it. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I do I do wonder what it was that was, you know, that that prevented me from capturing that. And and, and to this day, uh, you know, I'm a little bit scared of math.
2: There is a real... Gear change between high school and college, and you're not alone. The vast majority of students struggle with this. I actually, I'm part time at a university. It's called Queen Mary, the part of University of London uh, in East London, and I, I do quite a bit of work with the first years because, I mean, just the shock of hitting university and everything changes. So at school, you're given a certain problem and you you try exercises over and over and you learn how to solve those. Even things like integration and parts of calculus, you're given set types and there's an answer in the back of the book. But when you get to university, suddenly you switch and it's less about learning a bit of math and honing it, but looking at why that bit of math works and proving why it works and why it always works. And I mean, that throws a lot of students, but that is a big step closer to what mathematicians really like doing they like getting behind the scenes to look at the patterns and the logic that describe how something behaves and they're looking for unexpected links so suddenly one bit of math the logic behind it is the same as a seemingly unrelated bit and they can make that connection but it does take students a long time particularly if they've gotten used to learning a technique and then applying it that that gear change can be a, a can be a real real throw uh which doesn't mean that there's no, I mean, you know, becoming a pure mathematician is not for everyone. There are applied mathematicians, and I'm a big fan of a lot of applied maths. I love the maths and technology, and that is learning things and applying them, and uh, engineering as well. I mean, a lot of it is learn a skill, apply a skill, and so there there are areas for that. But pure math is a strange, abstract world unto its own.
0: But in your book, you kind of made me rethink my, you know, my notion that that math is just not for me, because all of a sudden, you started putting things into context. Like, for example, you know, one of your very first examples is how to slice a pizza properly. <laughs> so that's it's a, it's a big you know, issue. In today's <laughs> so society. Yeah, and I, and I totally, you know, it made me laugh, obviously. Um, but I also felt like it was not just applicable, but it You kind of walked me through step by step in such a way that I never felt that I didn't understand the previous concept, and and therefore I wouldn't be able to understand the next concept. So what is it about your book that allows, you know, that that does that for people? And is that something that we can then translate to this higher level math that is taught in universities, or is it still an order of magnitude difference?
2: Well, I have admittedly cherry-picked some of the more accessible parts, and what I was looking for are things that simulate – well, not simulate, things that are – the experience of doing abstract mathematics, but at a level where people can grasp it. And partly it's tricking people into it. So people go, oh, I don't like this abstract thinking. And I go, well, that's that's fine. Ignore that for now. Think of a pizza. And what I'm actually doing in that section is dissecting a circle. And if I say, right, we're going to do dissection of circle activities, people wouldn't pay attention. If we're going to cut a pizza up, suddenly, well, people can imagine a pizza. They've cut pizzas. They can imagine doing that. And what I like about that puzzle is, uh, the challenge is to people, if you want to try this, is the traditional way of slicing a pizza up, the issue is all the pieces touch the center of the pizza. And so if there's some topping there you don't like, tough. Whereas there's another way to cut a pizza still into perfectly identical pieces such that not all of the pieces touch the center. And it, it sounds completely impossible. And you start to play around with it and you go, this is not possible. But the longer you play with it, suddenly you go, oh, wait a minute, there's, you get one little foothold. Oh, that might be something to do with this. And you might go down a dead end. You might try the wrong thing. But when you suddenly get the answer, you go, oh, that makes sense. And that's the great thing about math. It's, math is just whatever level of abstraction. It's basically, it's it's like a murder mystery. You're trying to find some solution to the problem. And when you get that solution, it makes sense. That's the kind of satisfying part of math. It's like, you know, if you're reading a murder mystery book and you get to the end, it's just some random new character comes in as them. You go, oh, that's, that's, Boring, but a good book. You get to the end, you go, oh, that makes sense. There were hints all along, and that's mathematics. You get to the answer, you go, ah, oh, that was hard work, but it's great. And the first time I solved that problem, I finally got the pizza solution. I went to the person who said it to me, I said, oh, I've solved the problem, and they were like, oh, brilliant. Uh, which solution did you get? I'm like, what? There's more than one, and so I had to go back and go, fine. And now, I mean, there are a lot of solutions to that puzzle. That's what I really like, because once you've got one answer, that's never enough. There's always a way to abstract that and find other types of answers.
0: So I wanted to talk a little bit about that that process and that very special moment in which you have this insight. Um, for a, a lot of psychologists who study creativity, this is the holy grail, you know, this notion that, you know, our brain is working on something and we're not conscious of it. And then all of a sudden, you know, it pops into our consciousness. And we, you know, you, we have the eureka moment. And there, therefore, that must be the spark of creativity. And we don't really understand how that works. There's been a lot of people who have studied it. And so I wanted to see what we can learn about the process of finding a solution into math- to a mathematical problem that might help us understand how the creativity insight actually works.
2: That is a very good point because most mathematicians do it by accident, right? They have just they fall into it. They, they enjoyed it at school and they just keep doing it. And then, you know, they end up doing it at university and not many stop and actually think through how they go through that thought process. But it can, I mean, it's not like you're born with it or you're not. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some ridiculous, high-level mathematicians. It's like any field. There's just a few prodigies, and you go, I don't know how they're doing that, but they've had it their whole life, and it's just something else. And uh, But most jobbing mathematicians have just had to work hard to build up those skills. And in terms of that spark of creativity, I – I like to. I'm, I'm a lazy man. I like to assign as much thinking as possible to my subconscious, and the whole sleep on it, you know, to make a decision. That works really well for mathematics. So what I tend to do is I load up loads of information about a problem into my brain, and then I'll go away, and then the next morning you'll wake up and suddenly you'll not always, but you know, a decent amount of time you'll suddenly go ah, and it, there's I don't know how, but your brain's been working on it overnight and there's a new angle to it. I did. I woke up one morning when I was writing the book. And I woke up just going, there's a mistake in one of the diagrams. Somewhere, my brain had been – I've got a bit in the the book about shapes called flexagons. A guy called Martin Gardner popularized these about about half a century ago. And I had a diagram showing you how to fold a thing called a a hexaflexagon. And my brain just went – it's going the wrong way. I realized a bit goes under or over when it should be the other one. I don't know what my brain was doing. But somehow it was still churning through what I was doing the day before, and it solved some maths for me. So so there you are, mathematics. I mean, don't think about it too hard
0: well so I also wanted to talk about how similar the state that you describe in which you know you're you're focused on one problem and you're trying to get at this at the solution and that it's really fun uh, sounds to me like the state of flow that a psychologist Mihai uh coined in the 70s that describes what makes us happy um, that in fact when we are in a state of flow you know in athletics people call it being in the zone um, you know if you're if you're a performance artist you might call it uh, aesthetic uh, ecstasy you know we have these words for what what it feels Feels like when we are in this state of flow. And one of the things that he says is a key part of that is that you have a balance between your skill set and the challenge in front of you. And it seems to me that that's actually what can both make or break a person's love for mathematics. That if they don't have that skill set and the challenge is too great, it's just not interesting. Um, And yet, if their skill set doesn't match the challenge, so like, let's say you're good at arithmetic and, you know, how many times can you? divide by an easy number. It's just too boring. Um, is that is that what we need to how how we need to get kids to love math again is by really finding that balance and and getting them into a state of flow.
2: Yeah, no, you've nailed the problem in terms of having the wrong skills for the problem you're facing. And this is why a lot of people uh, think they hate math because what will happen is that school, because one thing builds on another, particularly what you're learning at a high school level, if you miss an important bit and suddenly you're faced with problems that require that, you you, you can't solve them and you, it's really frustrating and you lose your confidence. And suddenly you're like, oh, I'm useless at this. And then you miss something else and I just get these snowballs from there. It gets worse and worse. And so actually a lot of my work in schools is convincing students that they're not bad at math by giving them a clean slate. So I try and show them something that's so different to what they do at school. So there's whole areas of maths. There's a great one called topology where you look at It's a bit like geometry, but the shapes are a lot more flexible as such. And by giving them a whole clean playing field, all the students are at the same level. They haven't come in with baggage of what they do and don't know. And suddenly they realize they're enjoying it and they're achieving. And it's, you know, by resetting that skill clock, I guess, almost. But it's that people will enjoy doing something like Sudoku, but think they hate mathematics. And, and you think, oh, well, actually, solving a Sudoku puzzle is is basically that math's flow. It's where you're you're solving it and you're putting in, you know, using logic to work out where numbers go, you're deducing the answer, and then suddenly you've got a, a it's a getting a bit messy, there's a few possible things, then one thing clicks in, the rest all topple along, and you're like, oh, I've got this now. That's the same sensation that mathematicians are going for. It's that that using their skills to suddenly click everything in place. And the great thing about mathematics is there's always a harder puzzle out there, where if you master one, then those skills can be used in a harder one. That that never ends. There's always something else after that. But you're absolutely correct. If you skip too far ahead in that, you're doing yourself a disservice and you'll think you're useless at it.
0: So here at Inquiring Minds, we're always really interested in how we can use our bad, you know, badass science and math knowledge to change society. So I wanted to just touch on a couple of specific examples that you have, both in your book and other writings, of how... Understanding math can help you navigate the world. And one of them is credit card numbers. So tell us about credit card numbers, why they're special, and why it is that when I type in a credit card number and I miss a digit, the computer immediately knows that it's not the right credit card number.
2: This is great. So mathematics is all about uh, finding and exploiting patterns. And so a lot of the patterns found by mathematicians are then used in technology. And so credit cards have a fantastic pattern built into them where All the digits bar one at the end are your actual card number, and there's an extra digit put on to put a pattern into that number. And what you do for a credit card number is if you take every second digit on your card and you double it, And if you get a two-digit answer, you add the digits together to get back down to a one-digit answer. And then if you add all those one-digit answers together and then add on the other ones you skipped, you always get a multiple of, I think it's 10. And uh, the reason we put that strange pattern in there is exactly what you said. When you type it into a website, The website can do that calculation. If the answer is not a multiple of 10, it knows it's not a real card. And that's why if you type in a random number the correct length, it'll go, that's not a card. And it hasn't gone off and checked with the bank. It's just run that pattern. The same thing appears in barcodes. So when you swipe something at the supermarket because you've got to check it out yourself, uh, it can tell if it scanned it correctly or not because it's looking for a pattern in the number. And Part of me delights in this because I think it's amazing mathematics and it makes our modern life possible. And uh, without it, without what we call uh, error detection and indeed error correction, our modern technology wouldn't work. The problem is it's been so successful that most people don't even notice it. So when you're shopping, you don't have to walk around and you know check the bar. I mean, I do, but you don't have to. But it it goes on automatically in the background. So I'm, I'm torn. On one hand, it's great that maths can make our lives so easy and, and so seamless. But the other side is disappointing that for most people, they never notice it. And they, they, they think that math isn't helping them when in fact it is. It's making their lives possible.
0: So if you, if you know this trick, can you actually create a bunch of fake credit card numbers?
2: Yeah. In fact, there are websites that do it for you. So you can go on to standard websites which generate fake credit card numbers for you and programmers use them to test software. So there are kind of agreed ways to generate fake numbers and you make sure your software works with them correctly. But what happened just doing that check, looking for that pattern is only the first step. And if it, that flags up and goes, this is the correct pattern, then it gets sent to a bank and the bank can then go, well, hang on a second. There's no such card number. And so that is, it's a nice first stop. And I spoke to someone at their company. They wrote a program which checked all the outgoing emails for this pattern and it just scanned the data. So it wasn't reading them or storing them. It was literally scanning every number that came through. And whenever the pattern matched, it would flag that up as possibly a credit card number. Because if you've got thousands of employees, sooner or later, one of them is going to fall for a phishing scam or something. And so this was just, I mean, a lot of them were false positives, but it was a good way of good first start. But then, I mean, once the pattern's been checked, they have to then be sent to a bank or an agreed institution which will check whether or not they're, they're real numbers. So it, it's a good
0: first step. But that's kind of amazing that, that you know, if there is a phishing scam, it can be stopped right at the firewall or, or whatever the, the checkpoint is before it even leaves the company's server.
2: Yeah, it won't even leave the building, which is yeah. so clever. And on top of that, I mean, I'm a big fan of programming, so I do a bit of coding as a hobby. And uh, what I like is not only did... Uh, she, uh, the lady I met who, who wrote this code, not only did she write the code to do that, she then went, how efficient can I make this? And so she then made the code even more clever by doing a rolling tally. So it doesn't have to recalculate it for each batch of numbers. It can basically count them in and count them out and keep a rolling tally along all the numbers to make it much more efficient. So it's clever maths making clever math possible. It's just brilliant.
0: Awesome. And so this is also related to how autocorrect works, right? In text you, messaging?
2: Oh, yes. So now when you're typing a text message, there's two bits of clever math going on. One is the kind of autocorrect, autofill, uh, where it can guess what you're typing, or it can guess what you think you should be typing and all sorts of things. And that's using some really nice statistics. And the fact that it can learn what you're doing as you go along. And there's amazing mathematics behind the kind of Almost artificial intelligence of your phone learning what you think, what you want to be typing, and it's getting eerily good these days. But then, even once it, you know the autocorrect has filled in the correct words for you and you hit send, then when the the job of the maths isn't over because when it's being transmitted, things can still go wrong. And so, sending information over the mobile phone network is far from perfect. You lose data all the time and it gets corrupted, but it's fine because there's another layer of maths on top of that it's back to sudokus again pretty much where a sudoku puzzle you're going through and you're calculating and filling in missing digits so there's big gaps in the grid and you're filling them back in again and that's because you know there are three layers of mathematical patterns over them Text messages also have three layers of mathematical patterns. And so when your phone receives a text and bits are missing, it can use those patterns to recreate all the missing data. And so uh, not only will your phone in the first instance auto-correct your typing errors, but then it can still automatically correct any missing data errors when it gets sent. That's absolutely phenomenal.
0: (laughs) So I can blame math for autocorrect
2: fails. Basically, yes. (laughs) So when you send the wrong word to the wrong person, and it's hilarious for everyone but you, it is (laughs) math's fault.
0: So one other thing that you touched on the book that really intrigued me is this notion that had we never switched to Arabic numerals, if we had stayed with Roman numerals, that the way we understand numbers and and math in general would be very different. So that's kind of a big question. But I don't know how else to frame it. Can you unpack that idea a little bit for us?
2: It's an interesting one because mathematics is the search for abstract patterns and logic. But, you know, to be able to work on something, you can't, as you know, trying to do mental arithmetic is very tiring very quickly. And if you want someone else to help you, they need to better know what you're doing. And so very early on, mathematicians or possibly proto-accountants found that they had to write things down and communicate them to someone else. And as soon as you do that, you need an agreed way of symbolically writing things down. And so that's why we have number systems and then all of math that you end up having agreed ways of writing things down different ways. But there's nothing special about how we write it down. The way we write down a number like 37 with a three and a seven is because we happen to use our modern base 10 set of numbers. And I mean, if there were people doing math somewhere else in the universe, odds are they're not going to use base 10. They'd write down a number differently. But they would still know uh they still know 37 would still be the same number and they'll still know it's a a prime number and they would still know all these other wonderful things about it but they would write it down a completely different way and when you're at school it's easy to confuse the kind of just the nuts and bolts the logistics of how you write and mechanically do math with the actual logic and what really is math behind uh the scenes and so a nice example Uh, there are loads of numbers that have interesting properties because of their digits. So 3,435 is a fascinating number because if you take all those digits, 3, 4, 3, 5, and you raise them all to the power of themselves, so 3 cubed to the power of 3, 4 to the power of 4, 3 to the power of 3, 5 to the power of 5, and then you add them together, you get 3,435 out as the total. And it's the only number that does that. But it's only a property of the way we happen to write it down. And so it's it's interesting and it's fascinating, but a lot of mathematicians be very dismissive of that because it's not not real maths. Uh, Although the bonus side to all of this is, depending on how you write numbers down, some are better than others. So uh, the base 10 numbers we use now are a lot better, just mechanically at doing arithmetic than Roman numerals. But then other languages, so I believe, things like uh mandarin and i think possibly japanese don't quote me on this they have a much more logical way of stating numbers so we have this obsession with saying 12 and 13 but then we fall into a rhythm 14 15 all the way up whereas they have a much more straightforward 11 instead of a weird word it's just 10 1 or something like that so then later on we do it later on we do 21 22 but we don't do it Earlier on, and that actually makes adding numbers harder because it's less obvious where the different parts of them are. And so th- there are some advantages and disadvantages to different ways of writing down maths.
0: Hmm. It's, it's really interesting, and especially for me, because I'm a synesthete. And so I'm a grapheme color synesthete, which means I see letters and numbers in color. And people often ask me about that experience. And I have to say to them, to me, the number five is no less a symbol of five things than it is blue. I mean, the meaning of the color is so tied into the meaning of the symbol to me that I can't imagine it not being also blue, <laughs> um, and 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 yet you know that's obviously not how our society views it, and it's completely weird. And you know, so. Oh,
2: I, I mean, I don't want I don't to alarm <laughs> you. Five is not innately blue, but for you it is, right? But, but that, okay. that can be useful for you. And you talk to a lot of mathematicians, and they have assigned personalities to various numbers. And it helps because you've got that's how our brains work like that. And so if you can, you know, have a hook to hang numbers on and their various properties, that will speed up a lot of, of math and and the work you're doing. And so I, I think it's a great thing and, and, and it will help you do it. But um it's, unfortunately, it's not you. Know, you're very fortunate because uh, it's not something that all of us get.
0: Well, it, it helps me remember phone numbers and things like that, but I don't know what else it does. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> um, nice. Uh, but you know, getting back to the three four three five number, how on earth did somebody actually figure that out? I, that always amazes me. I mean, it just seems so like specific and yet random. And so, like, do people sit around and try to figure these numbers out all the time? <laughs> Do
2: not underestimate the, the effort that bored mathematicians will put. No, people have been doodling and messing with numbers since, you know, we invented numbers. So uh, I live in London. Actually, I live just south of London, but that's the point. In London, on the tube, all the train carriages have a five-digit number that's assigned to that train carriage. And So whenever I'm on the tube, I'll try and find that number and then work out, is it prime? What factors? Is there anything interesting about it? And so that's just how I pass the time on the, on, the, on the train. And it's just doing that. Mathematicians just like playing with numbers well, it depends what kind of mathematicians I'm like playing with knots or shapes or whatever they're into. A lot of them, it's down to numbers. And they just like playing with them and finding new properties. And so, I mean, and we're still finding strange new properties behind different numbers. And so, I mean, I mean, this is it behind the scenes. Professional mathematicians, all they're actually doing for a living is playing around with patterns. And so you'd be amazed the strange, bizarre things people will discover.
0: So, you know, a lot of our listeners whom I adore and whom I am one, of course, are pretty ner- hear oh, yeah, They're wonderful, nerdy. fantastic people. <laughs> Uh, but but we're a little nerdy, uh, and yeah. so I was wondering if you can give some advice to us nerdy folk about what, how to make math funny. How do how, how do we you know if, if I wanted to you know make a joke at the holiday table in the next few weeks about <laughs> math? Where do I even begin? Oh,
2: good luck! Uh, no, well, the great thing to remember is if you are a nerd and you're into some strange aspect. As i was speaking for myself, if you're into mathematics in an unnatural way. You're not that unusual. But, well, let me qualify that. In one specific sense, you're not that unusual because if you find something interesting, other people will. And the reason that we get nerdily obsessed with different things is because, you know, that kind of matches how our brains work and we like it and it scratches an itch. And, and mathematics is no different to that. And so when you're talking to someone else, don't forget, just if you find it fascinating, odds are other people will. But the issue with a lot of these nerdy subjects is you've got to do a lot of background reading to get there. And so what you need to do, if you want to communicate your nerdy love to someone else, what you're trying to do is find a shortcut for them from where they are to find the really interesting bits. And so you've got to go, right, you don't have to go and read or watch or do all these things. I'm going to try and find a shortcut so you can get a glimpse of why we think these things are so interesting. And That's what I've tried to do with the book was provide a series of shortcuts to – a kind of a highlights tour of the strange, interesting bits of math, but without having to have studied it for years.
0: Well, I think you've just single-handedly improved the dinner conversation all across the world, oh, <laughs> to our listeners. So, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Matt Parker.
2: My pleasure.
1: So, Indre, is it math or maths? <laughs>
0: I know, right? I mean, he came up with a really good reason why it would be math in the US and maths in the UK, or I guess Australia, too. And, you know, maths sounds to me so much more exotic and interesting. So I, I like saying maths, but you know, that it, just sounds nerdy.
1: This is ridiculous. There, I mean, for a mathematician to be like, well, it could be both in, in different places. And to not have a definitive answer was the most upsetting part of that interview. <laughs> it has to be math. And actually, so I love Numberphile, which is the video series that uh, Matt is on, and everyone should watch it, um, sponsored by the Mathematical Science Research Institute. I love that a place like that exists. Um, And they actually did a video on this. Is it math or maths? And they talked to a linguist. And maths comes from the word mathematics. And so let me ask you this. Mathematics, is that a plural of mathematic, or is that just a singular word?
0: It's just a singular word. Yes,
1: (laughs) Mathematics is a singular word. We can agree upon that, right? So if you said math is fun, what would you say if you had to use the word maths?
0: Maths are fun.
1: Yes. If you're talking about it in plural, if there's two maths, (laughs) two maths Uh, are fun, but maths is fun. Uh Uh-huh. So
0: wait, did the UK, do they actually say that? Do they say maths is fun or do they say
1: Mm -hmm. they do? So he's, say, wrong. So, so he's he's wrong. So he's wrong. It should be math because mathematics huh. is not a plural. They actually go through in the, in the video, and I recommend anyone watching it, the derivation of where the term mathematics came from. Uh, it's, uh, so it's fascinating. But for once, the U.S. reigns supreme, I think. Yay. It's definitely math.
0: Well, at least in terms of language. We, we often lose the language battle to the U.K. So I guess here we can say we're right and they're
1: wrong. <laughs> of course. The, the second thing I was going to ask you about is this notion of intermixing of comedy and science and comedy and mathematics. It's been emerging for a long time. And there are some veterans of the field who think it, it dumbs down. It really detracts from the weight of, of the work and uh, devalues the, the enterprise in general. I, I think they're wrong, but I'm curious what you, what you see as... As uh, how comedy and these sciences are intermixing.
0: Yeah, you know, I was I was actually surprised to hear Matt say that the you know that his book or acknowledge that his book is pretty has pretty simple concepts in it, and that you know he was like, well, you know, there there are things in there. It, it's almost sounded as though he was saying, look, I kind of dumbed it down for you guys um, because I found it very stimulating. And, uh, you know, I actually found that the way that he described some of these concepts that I had never really grasped fully, you know, finally, I could really get what he was talking about. And I remained interested in trying to work out some of these problems, whereas I never did, you know, when I was studying calculus in, in university. So, uh, you know, I, 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 on the one hand, think that Yes, probably, you know, other mathematicians might say, well, these are really, really simple things in this book. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist, I've been doing science for a long time. And there were definitely concepts in there that I finally felt like I could grasp after reading that book, and not after, you know, taking university level calculus.
1: Math has always been the area of the sciences, when you get to the upper level of, I feel like it's in another language like physics, chemistry, biology, there's still some sort of like contextual uh, like application that I can always wrap my head around. And then I'll walk into uh, a mathematical lab, lab being a loose word here, uh, and talk to some mathematicians and I have just no concept of what's going on. And that's because there is like a new language that they're really talking about. And and so I actually applaud Matt because I think math is the hardest of the scientists to communicate effectively, so if he's found that it works with comedy, all more power to him. Uh, because I I I think it's an incredibly difficult challenge, but we're seeing more and more of it come onto the scene. The I played with the flexa hexagons after the conversation. Those are incredibly fun to make these like folding flexa that can sort of flip an image on on the front of it. Uh, but I don't recommend the pizza cutting, the fair pizza cutting. That is. Super challenging. You can do it on a piece of paper, but you cannot do it with a real pizza.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to have one of those like really roly things because, you know, the answer to our listeners is, is kind of using a kind of sigmoidal curve, essentially and a series of, sig- of sigmoidal curves to cut the pizza. And it's, you know, those are, they're beautiful to draw, but they're hard to do with cheese and, you know, stuff.
1: And I actually don't follow the argument that that's fair because I'm like, I think he's not acknowledging that pizzas have a crust.
0: <laughs> right. right. No, he actually, he actually in his book, he he does say, let's imagine a crustless pizza. But I don't then understand if you have a crustless pizza, would you really have toppings such that, you know, there would be some special topic on, topping only in the middle of the pizza? Like that seems weird, too. Unless it's like one of those Italian, what is it the Amatriciana pizza? Or no, the Capriccio pizza that has like a Cracked egg in the middle, and it may be allergic to eggs. Uh, where anyway. are you getting
1: pizza? <laughs> Holy cow. I'm familiar with thin and thick, where I come from. Um,
0: yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, we do live in San Francisco. You should get out more, sure. <laughs> Um, so anyway, but I, you know, one of the things I did like about what he talks about is, that is he's genuinely funny. And like, sometimes, you know, you, you get these mathematicians, they come up and they do a bunch of numbers jokes and like one person in the room laughs cause they got it. Right. And that's usually like 20 minutes after the joke was told. But I actually found that, you know, he, he was, he was funny.
1: I thought he was incredibly engaging. I, I kind of wish that he was a lecturer of mine in, in college. Like that would be an entertaining class, uh, but the one thing that I did from the book that I recommend everyone doing is uh I don't I don't think you guys touched on this, but he took two circles and this and spun them together as they were interlocked at a, a degree to show that they could roll over together because the center of mass on, on this interlocked uh circles would stay the same at the same height over the plane that you're revolving it over. And I actually tried it with a couple of pieces of cardboard. It is Unbelievably fascinating and a real great um, uh, lesson in in Center of Mass in in the most uh, visual way possible. There's an incredible video he did of it as well. Uh, And as I was doing it, I was just like chuckling along in the same way that he was chuckling along uh, just sort of the entire interview. Um, So I I thought it was just absolutely gorgeous to do. Hexaflexagons, I also recommend. um, Vihart does some incredible videos online. Um, manipulating uh, flex hexagons. I can, ne- I'm not going to be able to say that word 10 times straight. Um, but I, uh, but I do wonder if there is a expiration date for this mode of engagement that after a while that we're going to say, Oh, comedy and science that that was a cute trick that we tried 10 years ago, or if it's actually going to persist. Cause I don't remember science comedians, um, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, do you think it's going to actually stick around?
0: I, I do, because I think that it's just a new way of telling the story. And I think that we're we're starting to be more okay with science being s- partly storytelling, um, which was something that was taboo for a long time. And I think that's just, it's just going to be more and more compelling. Um, and oh, by the way, if you get the hardcover version of his book, it comes with those circles already prefabricated for you. Um, but I couldn't get them to work because my son chewed on it
1: before. <laughs> so that would that, that alter that the center it. of mass. <laughs>
0: So that's it for another episode. Kishore, I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of Inquiring Minds.
1: It was absolutely a pleasure. Anytime you have math comedians on, please invite me back.
0: Well, even even sooner than that, we will invite you back. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us this week. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash inquiring minds podcast, And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiring minds at climatedesk.org. With the holidays almost here, you know you don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts, so use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. For a special no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. Imagine opening your email and seeing only the legit mail that you want and need to receive. MailRoot can make this a daily reality. There's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mailbox. To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis.